Hello, you legends. Welcome back to another episode of A Need to Read. I'm your host, Ed Cunningham, and as always, I'm here to give you a conversation that I had with someone who's way smarter than me. And this week is Professor Rory O'Connor. Just before I get into the conversation with Rory and what we had a chat about, I just want to congratulate each and every one of you uh, because you've made it through two really hot days in the UK. If you're situated in the UK, it's getting really hot. Actually, everywhere around the world seems to be really hot and dry at the moment. So just a little teaser of what's coming up. I'm going to learn about climate change and I cannot promise it won't put me into an existential crisis and make me worry every day about the future of humanity. However, what I can promise you um, is that I'm going to find out the facts, the interesting and the fun facts about hopefully not the death of um, humanity, but the future of the world. So that's what's going to come up. But today, today we've got something far more interesting than that. We've got a chat about suicide, which I understand some people might think, "Mm, I don't really want to listen to that because that sounds quite boring. It was actually a lovely conversation. Professor Rory O'Connor is one of the world's leading suicidal behaviour researchers. He runs the lab at the University of Glasgow and he's been working on it for over 27 years. So actually, as long as I've been born... And here on this planet Earth, he's been researching suicide and suicidal behaviour. He is the president of the International Association for Suicide Prevention, and he was the president of the International Academy of Suicide Research. Guys, Rory O'Connor is a legend, and he has done a lot to research suicidal behaviour and suicide. I chatted to him, and I came across his work, sorry, because I've came across him in Selfie by Will Storm. So if anyone's read that, which you should have by now, because I keep telling everyone to read that book, you'll have noticed Professor Rory O'Connor's name pop up when he talks about perfectionism. And perfectionism was one of the parts of the book that struck a chord with me. So I reached out to Rory and finally managed to chat to him. Um, we chat about things like socioeconomic influences on mental health, um, the social dilemma, the documentary on social media and mental health, uh, how that was a little bit too simplistic in terms of suicide attempts and self-harm statistics. Uh, we talk about socially prescribed perfectionism, explaining statistics around global suicides, alcohol and suicide, and how you, your little self, little old you, can help with the suicide issue. It's a topic that I'm happy to talk about openly with people and I think this is the kind of conversations we need to be having around suicide. So if you feel like you need support with suicide, there are uh, charities like Samaritans. Guys, I haven't done my research on this, but the Samaritans are really good. Chat to someone around you if possible, uh, your GP. If you think anyone would benefit from my conversation with Rory, uh, please send it to them. That might be someone who's supporting someone who's at risk of suicide or someone who has just had someone around them experience that. It might be a good podcast for them to listen to. You don't know. But I do. Maybe. I'm hoping it would. Anyway, we'll be getting to the podcast in just one moment. Just quickly, this podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, BetterHelp provides an online therapy service to over 3 million people worldwide. That's a lot of people who are getting their mental health sorted out through therapy with BetterHelp. You can choose your therapist and you'll match them up within 48 hours. When I say choose your therapist, what I mean is you can choose whether they are a man, whether they are a female, whether they are a open to holistic stuff, whether they are not open to holistic stuff. 
you get to choose them on loads of different preferences and you'll match them within 48 hours after you've completed the application and completed your payment. With the payment, you get 10% off because you are a need to read listener uh, and I love you all dearly and they also help me keep the lights on. So head to betterhelp.com forward slash need to read and you'll get 10% off your first month of online therapy. There is also other sponsors to this podcast and they're in the description, uh, but we're already four and a half minutes in and I haven't even given you over to myself and Rory. So here it goes. I love you. Enjoy it. You've been researching suicide and, and suicidal behavior actually as long as I've been alive. It's fair to say that you you know your stuff about this and this is a topic people, some people are afraid to talk of and, and some people are afraid about how to talk about it and you have a part very early on in your book that says about how words matter so when talking about suicide and suicidal behavior how must we kind of like watch our language well um, i think the first thing to say is well thanks ed i'm delighted to be here talking to you about the work that i suppose we've been doing for the last or well 25 years whatever assume you're saying you're 25 that's the message is it so I, uh, Google told me it was 1994, so I'm I'm 27, but they, they maybe oh no, that's true. That's true. Did, did you're right. You're right. Google's right. So actually, when I wrote the book, it says 25 in the book because obviously when I wrote the book, it was 25 years. But you're right. You're actually right. It's 27 years. That makes me feel even worse. We don't care. Don't worry. <laughs> no, getting back to the serious business, I think it's so important. First of all that we have these conversations around suicide. And that's one of the things I try to do in the book when it's darkest is to try and help people have those conversations, but also challenge some of the stigma and misunderstanding. So for me, the guiding principle is, yeah, of course, like any sensitive topic, one has to be take care with your language. But I think if you, if you, if you try to be human, compassionate and and treat people with respect, no matter what you say, you will not, you won't hurt or, or um, offend anybody. But one of the things I do talk about in the book is in terms of language, one of the words or one of the verbs we often use, or we used to use a lot was committing suicide. And, and, and the book I talk about, really, I don't use that term anymore. And that's because a lot of people tell us, a lot of people who are directly affected by suicide, those who've lost loved ones, as well as those who've been suicidal themselves have been thinking about it, find it offensive. And they find it offensive because it harks back to a time when suicide was a crime in this country mm. in the 1960s. I mean, it's as recent as the 1960s that suicide was a crime. And indeed, in the Republic of Ireland, it was it was a crime right up until I think it's 1993. And there are countries, there's at least 20 countries in the world that suicide is still treated as a crime, as a criminal offence. And so so what we, so my motto is let's do whatever we can to challenge that stigma and the challenge, or why, why should we use language which is potentially offensive to others? And I talk about people in the book I've met with different views on, the, on, on talking about com- committing suicide. But I do talk about a, a lady in particular I remember vividly, and she just says it's like she lost her son to, to suicide and that when she even hears anybody even on the on the news talking about committing suicide, so it just she gets this numb feeling because it's very cold. And mm. and so my advice is when we're talking about suicide, the only word I would really strongly urge people um not to use is committing suicide um, or verb. Uh, 
and then just talk about people dying by suicide, losing losing their, their their life to suicide. Now, having said that, I would never for one second tell somebody who's bereaved by suicide how they should should describe mm. the death of their loved one. I would never do that, but I just do it in the context of somebody who works in the field and and has a, a sort of a bit of a platform in the context of this this area. I advocate for just for that safe language. But beyond that, I think. That they, they, I mean, there's other examples in the book. We talk about different um, terminology, but in general, just avoid anything which is potentially stigmatizing. Avoid anything which, like, suggests some sort of value value judgment. So, to avoid talking about successful suicides because suggests yeah. it's a good thing, or avoid saying somebody failed in their suicide attempt because that again suggests that oh, they got did something wrong. So yeah. it's all about just trying to. Promote conversations in a safe way because that promoting conversations will hopefully get people who need help the help that they that they need or to start of sort of a life saving conversation. I often talk about, and and that comes down into like prevention at the very grassroots. I guess is kind of like de-stigmatizing it so it can be as casual a conversation as to be like I need some paracetamol. I've got a headache. I guess. Yeah, absolutely. It's just having. Just having having a language around mental health in the same way we've got a language around physical health. We like it reminds me a bit though of conversations. Now again, you will not remember these because this is twenty plus years ago. But the conversations around cancer, and 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 again, I talk in the book about the big cancer as the big C. And that's because we didn't want to talk about cancer, and people would literally cross the road instead of asking somebody about their cancer, and that wasn't because people were uncaring, but they didn't know what to say or they'd feel that they might offend somebody. And it's the same with suicide. And, and sadly, although we've made huge progress, huge strides forwards in, in our attitude towards cancer, and we've made some progress in terms of challenging our attitudes around suicide and mental health problems, we still have this long journey to go. Hmm. And how? What's, what's the like pattern you've seen over your years of of doing research are things looking up or oh without it, i think that i think in terms of the conversation and challenge and stigma we've made huge strides forward so for example i've i've done a lot of documentary work documentary taking part in documentaries to the bbc and they've all been in the last say five or ten years they, they just people weren't making those sorts of documentaries 10 20 or more than 10 or 15 or 20 years ago because people were frightened about it because again this idea that oh that you could plant if you ask somebody about suicide or talk openly about suicide it'll plant the idea in someone's head when all the evidence shows the opposite shows that actually opening up these conversations and particular asking somebody directly and so if you're in your documentary or in like podcast now mm. really trying to help people support people and asking these difficult questions asking people whether they're suicidal, that is really, really powerful. And so, yeah. so it's been great seeing that that conversation open, opening up and and having celebrities and the royals and others talking about their mental health, I think it's also been really powerful. But for me, that's the first step, right? That there's then an ethical question. And the ethical and moral question is, if we're telling everybody who's struggling with their mental health, reach out and seek help. And that help's not there. Well, that's unethical. And I think we are in that position at the minute, often that there are long waiting lists for treatment and support, especially 
for children and adolescents. There can be really long waiting lists to get treatment and care. And, and so that's for me, the issue then is making sure those treatments are accessible, not in three months time or six months time or nine months time, but now, I think that is yeah. the big challenge we face. That challenge existed long before COVID, but it's got even worse now. And the inequalities in mental health care provision and physical health care, both, but today we're talking about mental health, it's just got, it's got worse and worse over the last two years. And now we're not long about, we're not far away, sadly, from entering another recession. Yeah. And sadly, we know when recession hits, you often can see an increase in suicide. So it is a really concerning time. And, yeah. um, I'm, I'm, and we really, and no more, it's no more important now than it was, it's ever been, to prioritize mental health. And, uh, and politicians are great at talking about leveling up and having parity of esteem between mental health and physical health, but they really have to mean it and they have to put yeah. their money where their mouth is. But not just money, it's just having a strategic approach to really improving access to mental health services and also tackling inequality just generally across the spectrum. I guess the part that people can play in that is using their voting power, I'm assuming. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I would, be, I would encourage anybody listening to this podcast to write to their MP or their local representative and say, right, what, what can you shout loud, more loudly for mental health? Because there has been, like it's not, so it's important I suppose, to put it in context, there has been an increase in funding for mental health services, but it's just not enough. And then there's not enough people to do the jobs. And so recruitment targets for psychologists and psychiatrists and other mental health professionals are not being met. And, and there's a whole range of reasons for that. Part is partly because we just haven't invested sufficiently in training. Mm. And then the people who came from the EU, are, there are fewer, fewer people there to work, yeah. to do the jobs. Yeah. Well, I think we all know which kind of direction we need to be voting in and... and- and sending letters to the MPs in, um, in that exactly. sense. Um, you did just mention a recession, and there's um, I've spent a lot of time listening to and reading stuff from Jonathan Haidt recently, um, mm-hmm. and and one of his like big concerns is the effects of social media on like non like fatal self harm mm-hmm. um, and suicidal behaviour. But you you challenge that in the book, um, and and I'm inclined to ask you about that because that's the like popular media social dilemma narrative um yeah. but you you don't tend to agree with that so well so, do you mind explaining what they think and then what you think <laughs> yeah so there's obviously so um the social dilemma that obviously documentary which i i liked in parts but i thought it was far too simplistic and and i, and I was pretty frustrated by the way they covered and the suicide attempts and self-harm and in particular, in the last few years in the US, there has been an increase in young people self-harming and attempting suicide. And that's there's similar rates in other countries, including the UK, as the best we can discern. But the way the social dilemma did it was basically the way they framed it was, oh, this is all attributable to social media. Now, I just don't buy that. And I don't buy that because, A, suicide attempts and self-harm are not caused by a single thing. They're not caused by one factor. Really is multifactorial. Now, I don't just put for a second that somebody who's already vulnerable, who's then experiencing bullying or other negative experiences on social media, of course, 
that is a that is a risk factor for self-harm and suicide attempts and for suicide. But the key message is it's usually in somebody who's already vulnerable, somebody who's experiencing mental health problems, somebody who's other stuff going on in their lives. They may have had experienced early life trauma or whatever it may be. Now, so I'm not trying to minimize the impact of social media on particular individuals. But if you look at the research evidence, the research evidence so far would suggest that the impact on people's well-being in general, on young people's well-being of social media is, is actually relatively small and affecting a small number of people. But as I just said, that doesn't um, negate the fact that one individual could be adversely affected. Yeah. Usually it is when they're already experiencing other vulnerabilities. So for me, it's 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 the reason I suppose I object to those conclusions is they're too simplistic. And they also often the studies don't take into consideration like the nuances on how people use social media. And because some of the studies are a number of hours you use social you're on Twitter or whatever it might be, or TikTok, that doesn't really tell you anything about the impact the your usage pattern. So I think as a field of mental health researchers, we're definitely getting better at trying to understand the nuance. So we could then identify there's a particular type of interactions which maybe are more problematic. So we can investigate it. But this scapegoating of social media is really problematic. And then the, the other the other thing, but 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 I do agree with regulation. I do agree with the regulation. Yeah. And I do say that in the book as well. Is that that is important that. Like the stuff in particular on suicidal imagery and stuff like that, and self harm imagery. I agree that, yeah. that we need to be really careful about that. That's I think that's a different point because those yeah. that, that those sorts of images won't make somebody suicidal, but they could m- contribute to somebody acting on their thoughts. Is, is that important. it's part of one of your models where it's about like the capability and I guess learning ways to do so counts as part of that right absolutely absolutely so there's two um well let me i'm going to come back to that in one yeah. second it's okay because i want to just finish one last point on the social media stuff is it <clears throat> they so the, in studies if you look at the, the published research literature there's lots of young people in particular who tell you social media use is really beneficial it saved their life they learned supports either resources or networks of people you're maybe going through something similar to them, and they that sense of camaraderie, support, yeah. and networking. So we need to be really careful that it's because it has real benefits as well as, of course, risks. Yeah. But maybe just to return to your point, then about yeah, that you're saying about um, capability or, or um, learning about methods. And yes, in, in terms of this model of suicide that I developed a few years a few years ago, and it's it's called the Integrated Motivational Volitional Model, which is a bit of a mouthful. So it's the IMV model for short. But what it argues is, first of all, it argues that suicide is complex. The factors that lead to suicide are complex. But it also argues that the factors that lead somebody to become suicidal are different from the factors that basically make it more likely that somebody will act on their thoughts, make a transition from thinking about suicide to attempting suicide or sadly dying by suicide. Yeah. And, and so what I say in the model is that um that basically the key drivers to feelings of suicidal thought or, or to suicidality or having suicidal thoughts or suicidal intent is feelings of defeat 
and, and, and humiliation from which you cannot escape. But it's key. It's that sense of being trapped by mental pain, either internal mental pain or life circumstances, which increases the likelihood that someone becomes suicidal. Now, yeah. of course, the factors that lead you to feel defeated and humiliated can be triggered from feelings of loss or rejection or shame. And of course, the causes of those are vast. The cause, they could be, yes, yeah, so they could be bullying, they could be unemployment, they could be rejection by a partner, they could be um, trauma. So there's a whole range of factors or being trapped by your mental health problems. There's a whole range of factors. But to my mind, if we're trying to understand suicide risk, we need to ask ourselves, what are the factors that lead somebody to feel defeated and or humiliated from which you cannot see a way out? And then when we're trying to understand, okay, that leads somebody to becoming suicidal, what is it that makes it, which increases the likelihood that I talk about in the book about crossing the precipice yeah. of thoughts of suicide to suicide attempts or death. And in the book, I talk about well, this group of factors called the volitional factors. And these volitional factors are just a psychological term to explain those factors which increase the likelihood that you will act in your thoughts. So things like impulsivity, having access to the means of suicide, methods, knowledge about methods and so on. Those are things which increase the likelihood that somebody acts on their thoughts. Because thankfully, the best knowledge we have is the majority of people who think about suicide don't cross the precipice. And I suppose what the work that I've been doing over 27 years now as it is, 27 years is trying to better understand what leads to suicidal thoughts and then make it less likely that people cross the precipice. Yeah, so it's it's things like um, being impulsive or like uh, the reason I actually came across your work is from Will Storr's book and in there he speaks about perfectionism and I saw myself in there, not like necessarily produce anything that's perfect, but I would really, really like to. Yeah. <laughs> um, and and, and Will a big shout out to Will Storr's book is the Selfie because it's a great book. It's a brilliant book. Um, yeah, it's it's mad. It's yeah, I forgot, so that's right. Because I forgot, I forgot that entirely. Yeah, that's why you emailed me first. Was that what mm. we do in perfectionism? And I suppose then just one thing to say in perfectionism is that so we've been doing a lot of work on a particular ask, aspect of perfectionism, which mm. it's called socially prescribed or social perfectionism, and it's all about not necessarily the expectations you have of yourself, but it's what you expect important people in your life to have of you. Yeah. And, and if you fail to meet their expectations, you sort of are in this vicious cycle of continually feeling you're letting others down, continually feeling defeated. And so in terms of my model of suicide, the argument is that people who are high in social perfectionism, in and of itself, like that's not necessarily a bad thing, but often if you then encounter stressful situations, you're much more likely to feel defeated. And that's like sort of kickstarting or a, the sort of, sort of the pathway potentially to becoming feeling um, defeated and trapped and then potentially suicidal. And, and I think that's why I talk a lot about it as a sort of having a psychological thing the skin. And it's with the bows and arrows of life or being whatever shot at you, so to speak, or fired at you, whatever you do with bows and arrows these days. What do you do with it? What do you do? You, whatever it is. Right? I don't know. Mind whatever the verb is. But, but it means don't use it. If you're playing <laughs> social perfectionism, they're much more likely to pierce your psychological skin and uh, uh, impact on you psychologically. 
Yeah, and I guess that that's. I feel like I see it in a lot of people nowadays who have that like completely made up idea of what other people want for them or want for them. Um, and, and that is kind of thing we should encourage people away from. Is that safe? Yes, I, no, I agree. And, and indeed, I mean, one bit when we think, if we think back to the conversation we just had about social media, so I can see that if you're socially perfectionistic and you're, that you're trying to promote this existence of your, this, appearance of your existence on social media, well, that's potentially problematic. But again, that's only one aspect of understanding the, the things that impact our mental health. Mm. But, yet, but I do think, yes, as a society, and, and, and really focusing on our young, the young people, because we know young people's mental health has been getting worse. It's been getting worse before the pandemic, and it's got even worse since the pandemic. Mm. And again, I think we're not doing enough to equip our young people in schools how we manage our mental health, how we manage our self-esteem, that we're not being drip-fed our self-esteem on social media or by social media by getting whatever streaks and likes and whatever, all the other ways in which um, social media companies have regulated or, or whatever, um, whatever gets rewards through dopamine hits. Yeah, it's, um, it's definitely... Clear. It, it, I thought it was clear to me that, like, social media was was to blame for a lot of this stuff but seeing like what you said about children to ace um aces in in yeah. childhood will lead into more like suicidal behavior in the future and i i guess i social media might help for people with those kind of adverse childhood experiences because it might give them a community of people who have yeah. had similar experiences who aren't going to be in their immediate area but then i guess when they get hooked on maybe even like being open about their struggles then getting validated for that and then it becomes kind of like a, a cycle and at some point maybe that goes away and and that's where i guess status is quite quite an important thing if we go back to something will will has spoken about how does the, a reduction in status come into play when it comes to suicide risk because I've noticed before when my podcast hasn't done as well, I haven't been to like suicidal or, or thinking that, but I've become sad when my perceived status has has dropped. You know, I think I, I mean any 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 sort of marked losses in status, and there's different ways in which you can define status. So part might be you just use your example there of whatever how successful your podcast was, or your if you lose your job or relationship breakdown. So any any drops in status, we we as human beings have to process that and make sense of it. And if we're feeling really secure, hopefully that we, we can sort of be resilient and we can bounce mm -hmm. back. But if you're feeling particularly vulnerable or if it's another one, another negative experience after another, after another, the body just gets exhausted. And, and again, we talk, talk about some of the work we've done over the years on looking at, at the stress response. And so remember, when we encounter stressful situations, be that loss of status or whatever, whatever negative experience it is, so we want our body to prepare ourselves because that's a frightening, scary situation potentially. Mm -hmm. So usually we want our body to release cortisol, which is one of the stress hormones, and that prepares us to either fight or flee, prepares us to make hopefully better decisions or regulate our emotions or problem solve. 
And the problem is that if, you re- if your body's been repeatedly, well, metaphorically a punch bag, so to speak, but if you're repeatedly encountering these negative experiences, then your body, this, this, the stress system just breaks down and it doesn't regulate as well as it, it, it should or could. And then, so you think then, so you're, your body's not releasing enough cortisol, and then say you're just you're fe- you're feeling down anyway. You can start to see how these perfect storms of factors comes together. And say maybe you experienced early life trauma, so you're feeling particularly vulnerable, and you'd also lost your job, and your partner had left you. I mean, that's when you can sort of see this perfect storm of factors. And I think it's just worth reflecting on the fact that in the same way that we can only withstand a certain amount of physical pain, we can only withstand a certain amount of emotional or mental pain. And what you're trying to do is regulate stuff going on around you so you're, that that level of pain doesn't exceed your capacity. And so having friends, supports, social support, doesn't matter what those networks are, feeling resilient, that sort of stuff are, are what helps you. And, and I think the other bit I would say in that is that if we are, if our self-esteem is overly focused on one domain of our life, if that domain of your life doesn't go well, well, you can see how that's going to have a really adverse impact on your well-being. So if you think about it, really the podcast was the most important thing in your life and you had nothing else, and it went, whatever, didn't go so well, you can obviously say, you can can see how then that can really impact on you. Whereas if there's other stuff in your life, you go, well, actually podcast didn't do so well, but if I'm really lucky I've got my health or I've got my job or whatever else it is you've got. So yeah. I think it's that it's that strengthening that balance when we're trying to understand mental health and the impact of loss of status, social media, any of these things. Yeah. And I guess it comes to like sleep as well. Cause I remember there was a part of your book where it was quite cyclical with like sleep, stress, sleep, stress, sleep, stress, and then impulsivity comes into play. And yeah. there's so many different factors and well, I, th- I think sleep is so important and it's so so under i think personally still underappreciated the importance of it and and again because we know that we need our sleep to help the body repair itself for us to again put ourselves in the best position to deal with life with life's challenges yeah definitely uh, you always feel so much better after a good night's sleep and i was yeah. really oh, in that yeah Johan Hari's book Stolen Focus earlier this year about how important that is just to make our brains do do normal things. And I think it's like after like 18 hours of no sleep, you're you're pretty much drunk, he says, after being awake for 18 hours, apparently. Well, I don't know, I don't know that's uh, I haven't read <laughs> his book, but um, but no, but in general, I, I'm not I wouldn't be surprised if that's the, the statistic. But no, it's just yeah, yeah. Um it's just really bad for you. It's just yeah. really bad for you. To get good sleep. Um, yeah. Now, obviously, there's the male suicide question is is something I wanted to touch on because it's headlines wise, it's like it's the largest killer of men in between a certain age of young people to probably young to die. Um, but it also seems that maybe women attempt at higher rates. Would you be able to clear up that kind of information for me? Um, so the, yeah, so basically the. It's often called the, you know, it used to be called the gender paradox. And it was this idea that, an idea, this fact that um, men in the UK, for example, three quarters of all suicides are by men. In some age groups under 50, 
depends on which year you look at, but suicide is either leading or second leading cause of death in young people, both young men and women, and under mm -hmm. 34 leading cause of death. Um, but if we look at non-fatal suicidal behavior, it tends to be more commonly female than male. Now, there's lots of potential explanations. And, and so the bottom line is we don't know for certain why there's a, such a stark difference. Um, because there's also cultural factors, because that, that ratio, that male-female, like three to one you, of male suicides to female suicides, it's it's in Western countries like um, obviously the UK, United States, Australia, you have that huge um, differential. But in Asian countries, it's less of a differential. But usually in nearly every example, there's still more men than women die by suicide. And part of the explanation for that is because men tend to use more lethal methods that's suicide so sadly they're more likely to die yeah but there's also issues i think around um the what services are available for men in terms of are those services from people men are vulnerable accessible there's something definitely around help seeking and our ideas around masculinity and seeing help seeking as a weakness and um, and there's issues also about males relationship with alcohol we know that yeah. Obviously, much more likely to die by suicide, or most people, or not most, but a lot of people who die by suicide. There's alcohol obviously involved or a history of um, alcohol uh, problems yeah. from alcohol use. So, the short answer is it's complicated, and there is this combination of method selection, sort of these social and psychological and cultural factors, as well as in this changing this idea around what we mean with masculinity, what it means to be a successful man. And I think in, in recent years, the female role has become better defined uh, than the male role. And I think we haven't, I think I don't think we supported our men, our young people and men in, in, in that transition. So again, my message would be, it's not about blaming men, it's about saying to ourselves, well, okay, what do we need to do so that we live in a society which values men and, and encourages and changes our conceptualization of masculinity? Because not, but I think, we often hear about toxic, toxic masculinity, and masculinity is often demonized. So I think we need to re re rethink that relationship. Um, yeah. And so it's a much more constructive thing. So men are much more likely to seek help and and feel um, bit, bit, well, better about seeking help and knowing how to do it as well. Yeah, definitely. It's something like masculinity and the gender roles in society is something I've only kind of just switched onto. And just the other day, I saw a male article headline of a male article um saying like woke builders now talk about their feelings at work and it's like well if you're going to start calling people woke builders they're not going to keep talking about their feelings yeah. at work and and we're still going to have these issues so yeah because that was this week wasn't it yeah yeah uh, it's all the headline it was like the last couple of days yeah yeah it's oh. uh typical typical male and um, and i guess as well i've just started reading a book called the transgender issue and i'd, I'd just love to know in terms of like marginalized groups um, is it really dire in, in those scenarios as well? Absolutely. The, the, the short answer, though, is most marginalised groups have increased rates of suicide, increased rates of suicide attempts, and increased rates of mental health problems. But, um, but I think the, the other challenge we have is what we often describe as intersectionality, mm -hmm. is when you're members of multiple marginalised groups. So obviously you could be from a more socially disadvantaged backgrounds and from a minority ethnic background and um, and basically be gay or bisexual or trans. <clears throat> and I think that 
So I think there's a lot. So we have a lot of work to do. And, and the, again, the difficulty we have is, so we've understood the risk. We've understood the risk for years. And, and trans, trans is obviously a, a population which is really in focus at the minute, and rightly so. So it gets more attention and gets the support. These individuals get the support that they need. But we haven't worked it yet. I think how we deal with that, uh, basically combined risk and and making sure services are tailored and the yeah. needs of those people are tailored on out there. Yeah, I definitely. I, I think the services, from what I've read in the book so far, it doesn't seem that there are many services dedicated, which obviously causes issues with like homelessness and yeah, um, like interrelationship abuse. It, it, the list sort of goes on, but it's it's. Well, I mean, it's not good to know that it's. Uh, like disproportionate then but it's it's nice to know that fact um there was one last thing i wanted to speak to you about and it was the small acts of kindness which i've i've been following on twitter for the last last few weeks and i've seen that a couple of times a small acts of kindness one of the best and least effortful things we can do mm-hmm. absolutely so although to to prevent suicide um, it's complex, right? So without a doubt, when we're thinking, we're working closely at the minute, for example, the Scottish government as we devise, uh, Scotland devises its new suicide prevention strategy and action plan, and, and, and it's at all different levels of t- challenging stigma, improving services, um, uh, improving education, the whole range of things, media reporting. And so, so it's important to recognise it is complex, but... That doesn't stop us from recognizing that every one of us can play a role in suicide prevention. And we often talk in the suicide prevention field as suicide prevention is everyone's business. And part of that mantra is to help people understand that small acts of kindness, small acts of compassion, small acts of connection and reaching out to others could be life-saving. And the book I talk about a couple of people over the years I've met and that small acts have genuinely saved their life. Because what we know with somebody who's, in, who's suicidal is suicidal thoughts, we often describe them as wax and wane. They come and go in high levels of intensity, and low levels of intensity. And what you're trying to do is in those moments of high intensity, you're trying to ensure that person is kept safe. And, and to do that often, we talk about safety planning, a way of getting somebody to identify the warning signs that their suicidal thoughts might be escalating and then ways of keeping themselves safe either in distraction techniques or reaching out to others. But in the same, in that same way, a small act of kindness could be interrupt somebody in that moment of crisis. So anything you can do which interrupts somebody and makes them feel worth, worthwhile recognizing that their life and they are worth living and um, I think are so important. And like uh, the example I gave in the book and, and a campaign actually that the International Association for Suicide Prevention did, um, which is uh, an international organization which, uh, of which I'm president, that we did a couple of years ago was this Step Closer campaign. The whole idea with the Step Closer campaign was recognizing the importance of these small acts of kindness. And that could be a smile or it could be just lifting the phone or sending a text or a WhatsApp to a friend or like I was tweeting this weekend, obviously Father's Day or whenever mm-hmm. it was uh, this weekend. And Father's Day for many can, is a really difficult time, especially a, if you've either lost your father or if you've a father, if your father has lost one of your kids or, 
a relative. Mm. And but it's just that idea of just connecting because we're 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 social beings, and no matter we all obviously like our own space to different amounts. But that having just some sense of connection because we know that when the, somebody's acutely suicidal, they're we often talk about this tunnel vision or this cognitive constriction. You can't see alternatives. You don't think you're worth it, worth it, and you think you're a burden on others. So these small act of kindness of either reaching out to somebody, a smile, just engaging someone in a conversation, I really, really encourage it. You'll never you won't offend somebody by just smiling at them or reaching out and sending yeah. a message. And I think so I would really urge people to do that. And then the other thing sort of related to that, Ed, is it is it? I really encourage anybody, if you're concerned that a family member or a friend or a colleague is suicidal, ask them, be direct and ask them, because you're not going to plant the idea in their head. Well, as I said at the start of this podcast, it could be the start of a life-saving conversation. And the number of people I've known over the years who've asked that question, and the person who've asked it, thinks if it, if it wasn't for that being asked, they would be dead now. And I've asked that question myself. So I'd really mm-hmm. please encourage people to do that. But it is difficult. And I talk about how you might do that a bit in the book as well to try and give people support about, because it is difficult. It's frightening, especially yeah. if somebody comes back and says, yes, I am suicidal. And I suppose the message there, if somebody does say I am suicidal, it's then trying to contain that person, validate what they're saying, don't dismiss it. Don't try and minimize it. Just say that must be difficult for you. Let's can we co- contact a GP or another health professional or somebody else, another adult if it's if it's not an adult you're talking to, to try and then hopefully get that person the support that they need. Yeah, I think that's a really nice note to end on there because I was going to ask what can people do if they are concerned and and you've just covered it. So what's um what's coming up next? Are any any more books to come out? I, I imagine you said quite a lot in <laughs> in this one. I really enjoyed it, by the way. I haven't I haven't said that yet. I know it's an award-winning book, but I thought reading about suicide would make me pretty sad. Um, it was actually a really enlightening book, and I'm really glad that I've read it. So thank you very much for uh, writing it, Rory. No, great, Ed. No, because that's exactly what I'd hoped is it, because it is a difficult and dark subject and something I was uh, dealing with every single day. Mm. Well, I was trying to convey it as a message of hope, even, even for hope for those people who've been bereaved by suicide. We can't bring our loved ones back, as well as those, obviously, who be, who struggle to stay alive daily. And sadly, there are too many who do struggle to stay alive. So it is trying to convey hope, but be practical and also help people understand this complex phenomenon that, that, that often, if you haven't thought about suicide, it's difficult to make sense of. Um, in terms of, so I have always ideas for another book, but I haven't put them together yet because I'm still recovering from writing this book. And... Um, I've just recovered from COVID as well. And um, I mean, because this day last week, I couldn't speak. My voice oh, wow. hadn't come back yet. But yeah, and then we're all, we all, we're always ongoing to work, research, because obviously that's at the heart of that's my bread and butter, so to speak. So if anybody wants to know more of what we do, they go to our website at suicideresearch.info. There's podcasts and research papers and lots of other resources. So I'd encourage anybody to do that. But thanks. Thanks for having this conversation now. No, it's amazing what you do. Thank you, Rory. Okay, look, all the best. Have a great day. Cheers. 
Thank you for listening to that, you absolute legends. If you like the sound of that and you want to buy Rory's book, When It Is Darkest, uh, you can do so on the internet. It was the winner of the 2021 British Psychological Society Popular Science Book Award. So it was really good, and I'm recommending it. And honestly, I take a lot of pride in my book recommendations. So should this be a field of interest for you, I would recommend reading the book. All the information uh, for me, if you want to contact me, everybody, don't be afraid to do so. Tell me what you think. Uh, tell me what you're thinking. Don't tell me what you're thinking unless it's relevant uh, to one of my podcasts. That's what I meant specifically. Uh, you can email me at hello at needtoread.co.uk. I'd love to hear from you. All information for sponsors and stuff like that are in the description, like signing up to the email list and doing things like leaving me a review. And, you know, all the common sense cool nice things uh, that you could do for me are in the description of this episode. But I hope you have a good day. I love you. Goodbye.